the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome in to the Cover 3 College Ball Podcast. I'm Bud Elliott. Chip Patterson is out today. Actually, so is Danny Cannell, and so is Tom Fornelli, and that's because we have a special edition today of the Cover 3 podcast. We will be talking about the House's special uh, hearing that they had on NIL, our favorite moments of unserious behavior from the committee, and where we see all of this stuff going within the sport. We'll bring those special guests on in just a bit. Appreciate you guys tapping into the chat here if you are watching us live on YouTube, youtube.com slash cover three is the way to hit us up there. Please give us that like and subscribe. If you can, uh, if you're a first time watcher of the show, you can actually join us in the live chat. Just hit the subscribe button. That enables your ability to get in with the live chat. Uh, yeah, I see some guys already there. Appreciate it. And if you are on our audio side, uh, don't fret. This show will be available on all of your favorite podcast streams, Apple, Spotify, etc. And I don't think there's any real major visual elements planned for today. So this shouldn't be a, an audio product which suffers from the, uh, the video forward nature of today's show. So like I said, we will be talking about that kind of a joke of a hearing that, you know, happened last Wednesday. But first, I want to talk about some important news that did happen since the last time we joined you on Thursday. Uh, the first thing I want to discuss here is that Dominic Robinson, the five-star tight end, the last major piece of the 2023 recruiting class did commit to USC. He had offers from essentially everywhere in the country. He uh, is the son uh, of a former Florida State receiver, former five-star recruit himself. So we are now so old that guys who were five-star recruits now have sons who are five-star recruits. Uh, and he also, he's also a major baseball product. So uh, Robinson cited Lincoln Riley's work with Kyler Murray in picking USC, I why did I say Dominic Robinson? Dominic Robinson's this kid's dad. Am I crazy today? Yeah, I am. Sorry. Uh, yeah, thank you, Jordan, for for changing that in the doc. I, Dominic Robinson's the dad. I was I was so struggling for the for the dad's name, trying to remember off the top of my head that I wrote Dominic in the uh, in the doc. That's great, tremendous start. Thank you, Jordan. Anyway, Deuce Robinson commits to USC. What hmm. Mondays? All right. Deuce Robinson commits to USC. If you've seen this kid, he's not quite as thick as Aaron Judge, but when we made our YouTube short about him, that is what we, who we comped him to as far as a guy with, with that kind of frame playing baseball. He does have some pretty serious bat speed. You know, Contact will be something to continue to watch, but he wants to play both ways in college. We'll see how the, the baseball draft goes for him. Uh, but he cited Lincoln Riley's work with Kyler Murray, who was a two-sport guy and was actually drafted – uh, very highly but by the Oakland A's, I believe, uh, as an outfielder. So we'll have to see how Deuce Robinson does for USC. And yeah, that's uh, that's a great start to this show. The other bit here that I think is probably something we need to talk about is BYU and their spring game. Now, you might have thought I was going to talk about Michigan spring game, but since Tom Fernelli is our Big Ten expert, uh, it's something I wanted to kind of save for him on Wednesday. We'll be back on the show. 
Teasing Wednesday show, Rack's going to have an NFL draft expert on Wednesday, and we'll yell at him for all these NFL-style takes that we as college football fans know are probably just a little misguided. You know, okay, we're betting on, on tools. Get it, bet on tools, but this guy didn't do a damn thing in college. Do we really think he's going to step up in the NFL and be better? I don't know. Josh Allen, I guess, is the exception that proves the rule now for everybody. But BYU spring game. Held it over the weekend. You can catch some of this on YouTube. I don't know if it was actually on TV. I watched it on YouTube. A couple things to know that I would just say is the takeaway. Uh, number one, I think Keaton Slovis is your starter there at BYU. You know, he was at USC. Then he was at Pitt. I, I expect him to be your starter at the quarterback position just based on, on what I had heard there. Number two, if you watch the bowl game, I did. I kind of thought SMU was going to beat BYU and, and, and bet on them as such. Uh, they had a quarterback who ended up playing really well for them, at least on, on the ground. So Soljay Maeva Peters, if I, if I said his name correctly, I'm pretty sure I did. He's a really good runner. So good, in fact, that he has now moved to running back for the Cougars. I kind of liked it because they, I mean, they they have the Robbins kid who they got from UNLV as a transfer, who was a really good player for UNLV last year. Soljay's a good runner, runner as well. I I like this little one-two combo in the backfield, and I'm probably seeing our uh, probably seeing our live viewership numbers drop like crazy as I open the show talking about BYU's running back position. But yeah, we'll talk Michigan spring game on Wednesday. We may have a little note on the Southern Miss spring game. I don't know what to say about that yet because I actually didn't want to watch it, and I don't want to just parrot other people's stuff because I, I like to actually watch this stuff. So maybe a little Southern Miss chat on Wednesday, uh, definitely some Michigan chat and some NFL chat. Those are your two really big notes from over the weekend. All right. Today we are going to talk NIL. So the House had a hearing, and the title of, of the hearing was Taking the buzzer beater to the bank, protecting college athletes during NIL deal-making rights. Okay. Now, before I watched the hearing, I came in a little bit biased, right? I kind of think that Congress has bigger things to tackle than this. I am personally unconvinced as to why this needs to be a federal issue. There there are all kinds of things in which different states have different rules, and people can go to those states to avail themselves of those rules, both things that are really important and things which are rather unimportant. So I, I don't really know that we need uh, a federal piece of legislation on this, but they're trying to get one done, allegedly. Now, when I looked at this, I thought the invites told the tale. Uh, so you have a softball player from Florida State who has less than 10,000 followers on Instagram, so not exactly a big-time influencer, a football player uh, from Florida who hasn't played college football in a decade, went undrafted and wasn't a star. You have an AD from a state that doesn't have an NIL law, a D2 president, which there's not a lot of big-time NIL going on at D2, and you have the commissioner of the Patriot League, which has zero collectives in it and doesn't play major college football or men's college basketball at the major level. So... What, what are we doing here, right? Here's who you didn't have. Anybody with serious NIL value, an agent or a lawyer, somebody from a major P5 program in football or men's basketball, like a player, you know, or anybody who runs a collective at a major program to where guys actually have real NIL value, both in terms of marketing and also in terms of, uh, you know, if you will, like value to the program or roster value. So with that, I'm like, man, we could do this better than the committee did. Why don't we have our own hearing, bring in some guests, and after the break, we will. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, 
Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, my ceiling fan was making some noise there, and we have some guests. Look at that. That is that is some synergy here. So, uh, because I thought this invite list was kind of weak, I happen to like our invite list a little bit better uh, from... See, let's go clockwise on my screen. We have Will Watkins, who is the VP of Spire Spire Sports, the Tennessee Collective, one of the biggest and most successful collectives out there. We have Matt Brown, the publisher of Extra Points and a former colleague of mine at SB Nation. Matt is a true expert in this field. And we also have Sam Ehrlich. Is it Ehrlich or Ehrlich? Ehrlich. Ehrlich. So we've never actually spoken before on on the phone. We, we, We DM'd quite a bit. A business professor from Boise State or Boise State with a focus in sports law. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, bud. It's good to be yeah, here. Thanks so much, bud. Looking forward uh, to it. I thought y'all did really good work on this. I, I just straight up jacked Matt's line uh, about like how to classify these these folks who were invited uh, to the the hearing. Let's let's start here. From my perspective, and I, I'd like to hear y'all's. Like, what was this supposed to be for for? For the reps, it was basically a chance to like cheer for their local team and show their their constituents, hey, we like sports. Yay, sports, right? And bring a, a, a helmet, and then somebody brings a bigger helmet, and somebody puts on a, a, a colored sports coat. Kind of some re-election fodder and some grandstanding. And for the NCAA, it's a chance for their lobbyists to hand documents to some of your reps, and they literally just read them like it's the first time they have ever read them. Present the NIL as boogeyman you know, basically have a third party continue to pay for your players, but like also want to exert control over those third parties, have them do most everything an employee does without compensating them directly. And they kind of limit what kind of outside compensation they can make. What, what was y'all's main takeaway as far as like, what, what do you think this was supposed to be? Even if it had gone better, like what, what was the best case for this to be? You know, uh, I'll, I'll take a stab at this first. I, I, in a perfect world, one of the nice things about being a, a lawmaker is that you can call in experts to help educate you about anything that you might be touching, right? We have a lot of lawmakers who are attorneys. We have some that were small business owners. We had some that were doctors, but we certainly don't have every industry represented within this world and even within their staffs. There's so many things that even the smart lawmakers, and they're not all smart, uh, don't know about. So that's part of what you you have these kind of hearings. You can hear experts, people that touch different parts of this issue so you can better understand it and ideally make better policy. And I actually think some of the, many of the people they brought in there are, are smart uh, folks who know a lot about college athletics. You know, Pat Chun, the athletic director of Wazoo, is on every single NCAA committee and has been forever. He used to work at Ohio State. He knows what it's like to be at a big department. He was a, a mid-major AD, He's somebody who I imagine will have a bigger job than than at Wazoo at some point in his career. Uh, it's good to have player perspectives. They just didn't know a whole lot about the one thing they were supposed to be talking about, which is name, image, and likeness. And it's not because they're bad people. It's just that's not so much their job. The experts can only give it the answer the questions that are given to them. And so if the questions aren't serious, if the questions aren't aligned with their expertise, there's not a whole lot they can do. And that's why I think we ended up with two and a half hours of what it was truly difficult to get through television. And I say that as a guy who has to watch this kind of stuff for his job and is grading it on that curve. Like from outside, this was rough. Yeah, and I think, buddy, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it, the hearing was designed to be something like that by the lawmakers, by the NCAA's lobbyists. Um, it wasn't designed to really be, at least by my eyes, a serious conversation on the real issues that are going on with NIL, that the real issues that are going on in the college sports space in general. I mean, the fact that you, you know, aside from Pat Chun, you really didn't have anyone at this kind of higher level. You're 
I, I think there's a big risk whenever you're talking about these issues to conflate the issues that are faced um, with at the Division two, Division three, and even the the mid to low major uh, Division one levels with the issues that are faced at the the high major Power five, uh, even expanding it to to the group of five schools. Um, I think those are very different conversations and very different issues. But the fact that you're conflating the issues in these types of hearings and, and kind of painting very broad strokes as to what's going on here, I think that's a serious problem. And I think it, it really takes away from the amount of actual real conversation you can have. Yeah, I think they actually crushed it. I mean, they did exactly what they wanted to do. They they got to kick the can down the road and pretend they all love sports and follow sports and check a box and say that they're into and now we'll do this again in a few months and we'll just keep kicking it down the road until after the election. So I think that's really what they wanted to do. So from their perspective, they crushed it. Will, what, what was your reaction as, as somebody who, who operates a collective to sort of the demonization of collectives and the, the just the categorization of some things happening with, with collectives during, during a hearing? I mean, that's not new. That's what we're the boogeyman for everybody at this point, right? Because we're the new uncontrollable thing. So everybody paints us as the bad guy. Um, so it, it is frustrating. <clears throat> and honestly, I felt bad for the witnesses they called because they put them in an incredibly difficult spot, um, questioning them and asking about things that they don't really understand. Like, that's not fair to them. And it kind of deters from the rest of their statements because it makes them look like they don't know what they're talking about just because you're asking, it's like asking me what's happening in a nuclear reactor. I don't know. I can make it up and guess, but like, it's unfair to those witnesses. Um, so, you know, again, it's not new. We're, we're painted as the bad guy, which is, which is really unfair because I think collectives have a huge role in sports moving forward. You know, even if this shifts and we go to an employee model, there's still going to be a need for a collective now that players can monetize their name, image, and likeness, because there's always, if nothing else, a need for collectives to pair fans and players and provide opportunities for those players to make money on top of whatever their salary may be if it goes that way. So again, everybody makes it out to be the boogeyman. So it's not new. It's just frustrating that we're not there to be able to give our side of it and to speak to those topics more pointedly. So we are going to get to some positive things that may have come from this hearing and, and kind of get to progress. But I, I wanted to sort of list off a few of the things that I thought were sort of examples of the committee not really being serious about this, uh, or at least multiple members not particularly doing their research on the subject. Uh, so we had a couple of folks basically either outright say or imply that Alston uh, was the decision that caused NIL, which is just factually incorrect. Uh, a lot of people bringing up uh, dwindling athletic department budgets. Patchon says athletes could be fired for underperformance and nobody checks him on the fact that this practice literally already occurs. I mean, you have a lot of teams right now that have about 95 scholarship players and we'll need to uh, persuade a few of them to enter the transfer portal slash not renew their scholarships. Uh, nobody really had any examples or explanations of why states having different laws was actually bad for the athlete or for the sport. They just sort of kind of ad hoc asserted it and just everybody kind of rolled with that. And I, I don't know, like I didn't really see them establish the need for a federal standard, which kind of makes me think like maybe the NCAA's case for this is really weak because you would think that basically a lot of them are just reading off talking points from the NCAA lobbyists, it appears. At least they could put the justification in there if there actually is a good one. Uh, and then of course, nobody really proposing equal standards for some of the people that were actually on, on the witness list, like athletic directors or presidents, as far as having their, their pay regulated. Did, did I miss anything there? Are there any of those examples that stand out as like, Oh my, like, wh wh what was your face palm moment from this thing? What would, when, what, which of these things happened? I mean, you were out I mean, within like the first 15 minutes of this. Not, I believe I want to say it was one of the subcommittee chairs that made the, I believe it was the representative from Washington state that made the mistake about Alston and NIL. And I, I, it's understandable because those two things happened a couple of weeks after each other. And if this was the first hearing, I wouldn't have said anything about it, but this is like the fifth and we're a couple of years back. And then uh, Congressman, uh, Congresswoman, uh, I think sh 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 there, there's a, a, a harder for me to pronounce last name, uh, representative of Evo from Evanston, uh, north of where I am here in Chicago, one of the ranking Democrats in the committee, gives her opening statement and then walks out. 
And like, I'm not even saying that she should, that wasn't the wrong decision to make. I think she went to a different budget hearing and that probably is more important. But think about the optics. If you're sitting down here for the first 20 minutes, people, two people in charge making critical key factual errors. <laughs> and then let me talk. And then before it's your turn to talk, I'm going to peace. Like to, to forget the, the, the Georgia Bulldog red jacket, forget all the ridiculous props. Forget all the people that clearly haven't watched a college sporting event in 25 years trying to act like they have 247 subscriptions. Like that very beginning should signal to the listener like, ah, it's going to be one of that. It's going to be one of these hearings. And then you can kind of just downgrade your expectations accordingly. Yeah, and but I think you you already you kind of stole my thunder on on one of these a little bit. Um, where you know my my big baseball moment from this was was definitely Patch on talking about well if they're employees that means you know you can fire them, and I mean forget the examples that we you know may not even know about. I'm sure there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of athletes getting pushed out. Um, losing their scholarship, uh, getting fired for performance, or simply because the coach wants a wants a different player in there. We have two very public examples going on in the past few months, even past few weeks, of this happening. So, uh, with with Rick Pitino um, and at St. John's, and with Deion Sanders at Colorado. I mean, those are the two obvious examples. So the fact that you know Pat Chung can sit there and say. Well, no, if you know, it, it only happened if they're employees that, you know, these athletes can be fired for performance. Now, that's already been going on. That's already been going on for years, let alone the past few months. I mean, the the, the gumption to go up there and, and say something like that and, and really just misstate the employment issue and, you know, create this you know, really this perception that this this word employee is it's such a such a boogeyman, such a, a, a negative, you know, have, give it such negative connotations like that. I, I just think it's bad faith. And for me, I honestly, I feel bad <clears throat> for the softball player because, you know, they're up there painting collectives as a negative and like they call on her and she very eloquently talks about how good it's been for her. And she's probably had very minimal dealings with their collective. And so like not representing the collectives in a better way and not allowing an athlete with a bigger exposure, like, a, you know, a P5 football player, quarterback, like I would have called Chase Griffin, the kid from UCLA, because I think he's handled NIL very, very well. And, I, you know, not having somebody like there to talk to the positive impacts at a high level. I mean, I'm sure it's been great for her. But, like, if we're really trying to talk about NIL at the P5 level, why do we not have a quarterback or a point guard or somebody at the high-profile athlete there to talk about it? Like, that was the face palm When they made her try to speak for everybody, I just felt like they put her in a really bad spot, and she handled it really well. Yeah, that, that was the, the the line of question to her, on, on to, to Kaylee Mudge, the Florida State softball player, on the follow-up. Like they kind of try to make her admit that like collectives were evil and and, and it kind of kind of backed down a little bit, but it, it was it was very awkward considering like they weren't even listening to her first answer. She's like, "Yeah, I think collectives have been great for me. <laughs> you know, like, I can yeah. make a little bit of money. Like they're helping to pay pay for nursing. You know, like like it, it that was that was a little bit uh, bizarre to me there. So all right, d- despite this unserious nature of this hearing or. Maybe maybe Will's exactly right, that they accomplished exactly what they wanted to accomplish, which is a bit of a cynical view, but probably the view that makes the most sense, unless we just assume that everybody on this committee is incompetent, which I don't think they likely are, despite the you know the easy pop we get from uh, from talking about Congress like that. Speaking of easy pop, Sam, thank you so much for bringing up Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders, Deion Sanders, Travis Hunter, Colorado, Travis Hunter, Deion Sanders, Super Sanders. For, for the algorithm. Uh, <laughs> just just for for YouTube to boost this thing up since uh, NIL congressional hearings are, are such a, a popular topic here. So despite the unserious yeah. nature of the hearing, what what do we think was actually accomplished with this other than they kicked the can down the road and they got to say they, they like sports? Did, did we make any progress from the prior hearings? So when I saw this, Oh, I had the same reaction that I, you know you were sharing with us off air, and I imagine that a lot of the people listening to this had, which uh, if they actually watched the hearing, which was nobody's learned anything. You could have you could have done this played this entire hearing in 2021, um, right after NIL first became a thing, and nothing would have changed. Um, but if I when I talked to a couple of staffers for some of these lawmakers. I've reached out to, to Representative Bill Rackus's office and I talked to some, uh, some, some of the lobbying folks and they said, 
just about every hearing is like this. Like not just about NIL, but about TikTok, about foreign aid, about a bunch of other things, which is depressing in its own right. And a lot of the actual blood and guts work of drafting a bill and haggling, that happens behind the scenes. And it's done from the staff of the committee chair. It's done from the staff of the committee itself. And it's not on C-SPAN. And when I have talked to ADs and lobbying people and folks who are really involved in this effort, after this hearing, I was told that there's still a sense of optimism from Representative Bill Rackus, the, the committee subchair, Republican, represents North Tampa, that the House will put together a very skinny, skinny NIL bill that will focus primarily on a national standard. My understanding is that the, the House is not looking to we're not likely to put uh, out legislation that's going to address the employee's employee question. It's not likely to get too far into the weeds about antitrust. It's, hey, let's figure out what state has the most permissive rules and let's peg everything to them. And then the hope is let's get it to the Senate and then let's negotiate. Let's try to we'll, we'll see what else gets moved on to that. We'll, let's see what happens there. I don't believe that it is especially likely that a bill is going to pass, but if the people that do this for a living are saying, I know that looked really rough and everything that you wrote there is true, but there is actual work happening behind the scenes to try and solve one of these problems, I'm, in, I'm inclined to believe them. How impactful that will be, it depends on what the bill says. So I think for me, I think we saw two kind of key indicators. And um, I teach negotiation as part of my job. So really what I look towards is, you know, how – you know, how they're presenting the issues, how they're presenting kind of their side of this negotiation bargain. And I agree with Matt, a lot of this is going to happen behind the scenes. Uh, it's not going to happen in front of a hearing where these representatives are really just looking for sound bites, really just looking to say, rah, rah, I support a uh, hometown team. Isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, I like the same things you do, constituent. <laughs> but I think we, I, I think we really noticed um, two con really conflicting bargaining positions here. Uh, one from the NCAA, which is, it's clear what their focuses are. It's clear that they're gonna be focused on looking to uh, get something that um, kind of eliminates the employment question that gives them an exemption to the Fair Labor Standards Act and to the National Labor Relations Act. Um, it's clear that they're looking for antitrust exemption. And they're clear that they're also looking for this preemption to try to standardize the rules across the 50 seats, even if they haven't really, as you said, they haven't really articulated what the differences are and why those differences matter. Um, but I also think we saw a lot of the concerns from kind of the other side of this issue. And, you know, there weren't a lot of representatives who, you know, were, were really articulate enough in this hearing, at least to, to, to show, um, you know, to, to really show any kind of clear kind of indication here. But one representative that I really thought, uh, a, newer stuff, and B, was willing to probe on these issues was uh, Representative Freehan from, from Massachusetts. You know, and that makes sense. She's a former college athlete herself. But, you know, she's asking, you know, she's picking at uh, Pat Chun, you know, constantly hitting the Title IX bell and saying, well, aren't you taking advantage of loopholes to Title IX right now? Isn't there, wasn't there a report that came out that said that uh, you're double counting female athletes and counting uh, some men's bench players on, on women's sports as, as, as women's scholarships? And... You know, that, that shows, again, the bad faith that, that was kind of brought to the table here. And she also, you know, just picked at the, the you know, really just picked at the, the, the collective issue a lot more and really showed, uh, A, I, I think it's going to be a big, it's going to be a lot of negotiation that's going to have to take place with the Democrats in the Senate, the, the, the Booker, the Blumenthal, the, uh, the Murphy trio, um, along with Representative Freyan at the House level. And B, you know, though, they're they're gonna they're gonna really pick at those issues specifically. They're gonna pick at they're gonna try to make the NCAA move in areas that they don't want to move, and that's gonna make for a very long and very arduous negotiation process, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key. I actually do think eventually um, there's gonna be a federal preemption. Like, I think they'll get that done, but I don't think it's anytime soon. Um, you know, I think it's post next election probably, and then they'll they'll pass something, but. I mean, from the collective side, I'm all for that, honestly, um, just because one level playing rules for everybody across the country is better for the athlete. I think it's just easier to comprehend. So you don't have to be like, all right, well, you know, I live in California, so here's my law for here, but I'm going to go to school in Tennessee. Here's my law here. Or, you know, if a player transfers like, well, I've been doing this for NIL in Tennessee. Now I'm going to 
Georgia. Now the rules are this. Like it's just it's confusing for the athletes. So I hope that we can figure this out and get a federal law for everybody. Uh, just to, so everybody's got you know one set of rules. Let's hit green light. Let's go. I just don't think it's happening anytime soon. Interesting. All right. So let's go ahead and let's break here. And when we come back, we'll sort of place our bets and talk about the likelihood of all of these things that Sam mentioned that the NCAA wants, right? So, that, you know, preemption, national NIL database with transparency, antitrust, all that kind of good stuff, where we think this thing is going, timelines for it, maybe where they can get the votes, maybe where they surprisingly cannot get the votes. So we'll see you all after the jump. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. Appreciate you guys. Uh, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button if you are watching us live. We are joined again by Will Watkins of Spire, Spire Sports. That's the Tennessee Collective, one of the biggest and most successful collectives out there. Matt Brown of Extra Points, former colleague of mine at SB Nation, and also uh, Sam Ehrlich of Boise State, business professor with a special focus in sports law. So, uh, I think our panel is better than the uh, the subcommittee's you know hearing panel, but uh, you guys can be the judge and vote with your likes. So before we broke, uh, Will was talking about the he thinks that eventually they will get some federal preemption. I I want to get to that um, first. I kind of want to think like so we do think a bill will be produced by this subcommittee, right? I think we, that right now. I think I do too. Just from like reading the tea leaves, anybody not think that? I think a bill will happen. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a bill that will go anywhere. I mean, we've already had seven bills that have gone nowhere. Yes. That's fair. So do we think it actually passes the House? That I don't I don't know yet. I would need to report that out more, in part because this is not going to be the only House subcommittee that's going to consider NIL and, and, and various other college athletic reforms. So there, it's possible, like we had with the Senate last year, where there was like seven of these, you might have three, and then Kevin McCarthy gets to pick which which one moves out. That, ask me in three weeks. Gotcha. We would think there's about a 0% chance that the NCAA gets everything at once, though, especially in, in the near term. Like that's... Yeah, I don't think that's happening. Yeah, zero. Yeah. Zero. Gotcha. Especially if some of the Republicans don't actually view this as a federal issue then this thing is really DOA. Like if you get a couple of Republicans that are a little more like, why do we need federal governance on this? Then states, you know, like states rights. Uh, then I, I think the votes just like from back of the napkin math are really sketch. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about this earlier today, um, particularly in the Senate, right? And, and the, 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 the politics in the Senate and the house are different, not just because Republicans control one nominally, and Democrats nominally control the Senate. But college athletics reform is a tricky issue in that it doesn't exactly fit on neat, completely partisan lines. And I actually think that the politics is going to change a little bit more in maybe six to nine months after we have some National Labor Relations Board hearings, after we have some more updates with the Johnson case um, and the NCAA's lobbying machine can change their arguments a little bit. So we have a pretty good idea in the Senate that the people that care the most about college athletics tend to be Democrats. They tend to be congregated in the Northeast and they look at NIL holistically as part of college athletics reform, especially in a labor lens. These are people like Senator Murphy, Senator Blumenthal out of Connecticut, uh, 
Senator Sanders, uh, Vermont, Senator Warren, Massachusetts, Senator Booker, former college football player, New Jersey. I would look at like that group and maybe Senator Padilla in California, Merkley in Oregon. You know, we're looking at about seven or eight Democratic senators who are hardcore, absolutely not going to support anything that removes uh, the, uh, the collective bargaining, uh, employee designation, takes these major things off the table for athletes without anything very significant coming back. Um, you also have a handful, and maybe you guys might know this a little better than I, because I'm, I'm only just beginning to make these conversations, but you have a few Republicans in the Senate, folks like Rand Paul or Mike Lee, that are unlikely to support anything out of principle. There are the kind of people that vote no on everything and don't think that this is the kind of thing that the federal government should be involved with. I don't think Mike Lee's a big college sports fan. I feel like I know Utah Twitter pretty well, not hearing him spouting off on this very much. So then the path to 60 gets tricky, but I do think there might be a path that includes Democrats and Republicans. So walk with me here as a, as a hypothetical. Like, let's say six months from now, National Labor Relations Board says at least some college athletes are employees. And let's say you're a guy like John Tester, Democratic senator and relatively red, red state, Montana. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a picture of John Tester. Man looks like a defensive coordinator. He's got the, you know, his, his, his constituents are those kind of people. He's going to be in a really tough reelection vote. And if his people say, listen, if you don't vote for this bill, people are going to say that, that you're going to hurt Montana and Montana State Athletics. You're going to hurt mid-major FCS programs unless you take some measures to preserve college athletics as we know it. I could see the attack ad. I could see Tester maybe joining with some Republicans on this vote. Could you get Joe Manchin? Hell, Joe Manchin's leading. He's working with Tommy Tuberville right now on something. You could get him. Could you get Sherrod Brown? Very pro-labor Ohio guy. Ohio is turning much more conservative. Uh, he's going to be in a very tough vote. Does he want to be facing an attack ad that says you're hurting Ohio State's women's basketball, that you're hurting Ohio State athletics by not supporting this? So there, depending on what the bill looks like, I could see this getting a little bit more complicated. But um, it's not a straight shot for just rubber stamping one, two, or three things of what the NCAA wants, because that doesn't really fit in the neatly in the R&D box. And the Republicans barely control the House and Democrats barely control the Senate. So it gets really messy trying to handicap what's going to move, what's moved through everything. And I think another issue here is, you know, you're, you're going to have to get the, the leadership of both of these caucuses to actually care about this issue, to actually um, you know, to actually prioritize this issue enough to actually get a bill in front of in front of the, the broader House, the broader Senate. And I'm just not convinced that Kevin McCarthy and Chuck Schumer care enough about this issue. They're not the ones who have been necessarily out in front of this. And maybe their membership makes enough noise that they, you know, that they get something out there. But Congress has a lot of things to do right now. Uh, I'm just not fully convinced that this is going to be enough of a priority of the people who are really going to be pulling the strings here, especially if it's a bill that, you know, on the Democratic side uh, that, you know, Murphy, Sanders, uh, Blumenthal, Booker don't like. And on the Republican side that, you know, some of their members don't like. So, yeah, I, mean, I think that's going to be a really like Matt said, it's going to be really, really messy in the short term at, at the very least. Yeah. And I think that's almost where it ends up long term. I think it's going to be like the Supreme Court essentially passed their rule and they were like, Hey, NCAA, don't come back here. <clears throat> here's the laws. Here's the ruling. Leave, leave us alone. We have other things to deal with. I think that's what's going to happen in Congress. They're going to go, okay, why are we still meeting on this? Okay, here's your rules. Go. Don't come back. I think they just, at some point, they're going to be enough is enough. Let's move on. Here, here's your rules. Everybody go. Act under these rules. Don't come back. And I think the likelihood of a you know very skinny bill, as Matt put it, where it just takes the the most per permissive standards at the state level and creates federal presumption, I think that could be something that could pass. I think that's something that is 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 small enough that you know both sides are are going to be like, okay, that's totally fine. But as soon as you're talking about you know uh, exemptions to antitrust law, exemptions to the employment laws, exemptions to you know collective bargaining, that's when things are, and those are the big priorities for the NCAA, clearly. Yeah. Um, as soon as that happens, it becomes a mess. It becomes an absolute mess. And I, I just don't see any of that happening. Maybe you get this this preemptive bill happen in the short term, but anything else, I mean, it's going to take a lot of bargaining. So let, let's, let's talk about, about preemption then, right? So federal preemption here, obviously the word preemption basically like you are preempting 
the state law. So whatever the federal law says controls. What do we think would actually be in a bill with preemption, right? So you would have, of course, like, hey, all right, we have preemption, but as to what specifics do we think would be preempted in terms of things that like, hey, the feds, we're laying down the law, this, this, and this, the states reserve the rights for everything else. What what do we think would actually get in a passable law that has preemption in it? This is a great question. And I, first, I think it might be instructive for the audience to better understand what is actually different between state NIL laws right now, right? We've got about two dozen or so of these things that exist. We've got a bunch of other states that don't have them. And 80 to 90% of the state NIL laws are really pretty similar. Where you see the biggest differences typically, and I haven't inspected all 26 of these, are about disclosure. Some states say athletes need to disclose deals at least to the university. And we can redact things so nosy reporters like Matt can't read them, but you have to send it to us. And other states have the complete opposite. They say, actually, not only like schools can't ask that, athletes are forbidden from sharing that information. So when we talk about what happens with the ability to build a database or what happens with some of these disclosure things, that's tied into preemption because you can't build a database if some states say that's none of LSU's business or that's none of, of, no, that's none of Illinois' business. That's one issue. You have a couple you have a couple of states that have different rules about to what extent can the university be involved? Can the university promote the NIL activity of a collective or an individual athlete? And what does promote mean? Can the university provide a tax attorney to help an athlete figure out the finances for uh, the NIL deals that they've done? Can they make an introduction to somebody in the community that might be interested in the deal? Um, can they actually help negotiate that deal? And even if like that's allowed, a lot of big schools are like, there's no way in hell we want to do that anyway because we don't want the liability that comes with it, but that's permitted. There's some, there are some actually significant differences. And Pat Chun talked about this in the committee hearing. Washington State has, doesn't have an NIL law. It does have a very strict state ethics rule that forbids anybody with like a uw.edu email address from promoting a collective or promoting an athlete's individual activity or from a professor promoting their book or many of these other things here. And that I could see might put them at a competitive disadvantage to Utah or to Colorado where some of those things might be permitted. So if we're gonna have a, pre, a, a national bill, I imagine that means we're gonna have a uniform standard for what exactly the athletic department is and is not allowed to do, what the obligations are for the student in disclosing any activity whatsoever, and what industries are going to be permitted or not permitted. You have a couple of states that said you can't do a deal with a gambling company. You can't do a deal with the porno company. You can't do a deal with CBD. And some say you can. Not that I think that there's necessarily a gigantic demand for people to do uh, businesses with, with sin industries, right? But that's the kind of thing that would go into this sort of bill. Um, not gigantic differences in practice, but they are the kind of things that, that give compliance directors white hair like I've got right here. Yeah, and just to jump off that real quick, um, and I think you know the, the point about you know who athletes are able to partner with is is a big difference as well. But also where and how is a big difference as well, um, because you have some of these state laws that uh, you know say, well, you can't, you know, you, you can't uh, you, you you can't engage in nil activities during your during official team activities, and a big problem is that a lot of states don't define what official team activities is. A lot of states are very much overbroad in defining what state act, what official team activities is. Uh, Virginia includes classes in there. Uh, are classes official team activities? Well, Virginia seems to think so. Um, I'm not as convinced. I personally think it raises First Amendment issues, but that's a that's a different conversation. Um, so I think standardizing that as well is going to be an important thing as well. It's going to be an important issue too, um, because. On one side, you're going to have a lot of schools that are going to be lobbying, saying we need as many protections as possible. We need as much freedom as possible because we need to do things like prohibit ambush marketing. Uh, Ohio State, for example, their institutional policy forbids college athletes from promoting uh, uh, products that are competitive to Nike or Coke while they're on campus. And that's uh, that, that, that's certainly in their interest, whether it's in the athlete's interest is a different story. Um, and on the other side, the you know the advocates for the athletes are really going to be pushing for really as few of these restrictions as possible because you know it, it's kind of crazy to say that uh, first of all, how do you define promote, and second of all, 
you know, does that mean that a college athlete can't walk to class wearing a Pepsi shirt? I mean, that's, you know, that, that, that seems to me like, uh, you know, a little crazy. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> from the collective perspective, I think we want a set of rules just so that like at, at the end of the day, we're all operating on the same level. You know, you talked about different states have different level of promotion and like, that's almost unfair. Like in some school, some states, the coaches can't even acknowledge that a collective exists. Meanwhile, Ohio State's got a video where their associate basketball coach says the most important donation you can make is to NIL. Um, so that's putting places at a competitive disadvantage. Uh, but also with the athletes, you know, to your point, Sam, I, I'm an advocate for the athletes. I think I think they should be allowed to do whatever they want as long as they're not using school marks. If they want to be a Pepsi sponsor at a Coke school, absolutely go for it. This is, a you know, freedom of athletes to make as much money as they want. That's what we're here for. So we just want a seat at the table. You know, I think it should be us, but I think collectives need a seat at the table as we're kind of navigating this new landscape. Like we can tell you how it works day to day for athletes, not including us in this has been crazy, but we just want a set of rules. Let us know what we need to operate in and then let the best of the best rise at the top. From a, a, pro, or a, a pro player standpoint, the, the thing that we just discussed that would be probably the most uh, anti-player would be required disclosure if that were to become public, right? Because then you kind of have collusive behavior, not as was alleged uh, necessarily by the committee, uh, but you know, collectives colluding, but rather uh, like if everybody can see what everybody makes, then that, that's, that's sort of going to drive down salaries in, in many cases. So, yeah, I, that, that's... We think of the big issues like that's probably the, the the preemption is the most likely to get passed. I do. I mean, it it sounds uh, very intuitive, right? If you just say like, "Hey, we have twenty six different standards," wouldn't one standard be better? Like, even if you don't know anything about anything, here you go, "Well, well, boy, that that does sound reasonable, right?" And, and and as long as you don't like look inside the paper and see what any of those standards are, that's the kind of thing that can kind of slide through a little bit easier. The other other things the NCAA is asking for, like antitrust exemption, like guys, I write about this for a living and like my eyes immediately started to glaze over. Like, and and I write for sickos and industry people. And when I write about antitrust exemptions, they're like, I'm pass. That becomes a harder thing to articulate. You can fit national standard in a tweet and people know what you're talking about. All right, so if we have a sports business legal expert, can Sam give us in under two minutes what the antitrust exemption would do for the NCAA, why they want it so bad, and why they're almost really not going to get it. Well, I could try to do it under two minutes. Uh, antitrust law is a very complicated uh, legal field that I think a lot of uh, even lawyers are, are scared to death of. But antitrust essentially says that uh, you know competitive actors can't collude, can't price fix, uh, you know, when they're when they're selling products, when they're buying products, that kind of thing. So Coke and Pepsi can't get together and say, you know, I'm using them because I just brought them up. They can't say, well, you know, we're competing with each other not only on taste, but we're also competing with each other on on price as well. So let's get together. Let's as the two big soda brands get together and say, we're not going to sell Coke product, or we're not going to sell Coke, and we're not going to sell Pepsi for anything less than ten dollars a bottle because. You know where else are the are, are the consumers going going to turn? And yes, there are other products out there. There's other sodas out there, but um, you know maybe they get together with the other soda manufacturers and, and create the same things. And all of a sudden, everyone who wants to buy Coke, who wants to buy Pepsi, who might not have a preference in terms of taste between the two, is going to say, "Well, the only way I can get this is by uh, paying the ten dollars a bottle," and that's tremendously unfair. And the same applies for labor as well. You can't have uh, you know, groups that compete for for particular labor entities that partake, that compete for employees that compete for uh, independent contractors, anything like that, get together and say, "Well, we're collectively, you know, we, you know, Google, Apple." Uh, there was a suit about this fairly recently. Google, Apple, Microsoft, etc., can't get together and say, "We're only going to hire our programmers at." You know our entry level programmers at thirty five thousand dollars a year because where else are they going to go aside from from one of us? Um, we're you know we're going to you know collectively set a standard here where um, we're going to fix the price of, of labor at a certain cost in order to control costs from ourselves. And the argument all along has been that you know it's not even necessarily that college athletes aren't compensated because they are you know fifty percent fifty seven percent of them at the divisional level receive a scholarship as compensation. Uh, the Third Circuit picked up on that in the Johnson case, 
it's the fact that it's price fixed. It's the it's the fact that a college athlete who's deciding between Alabama and Auburn, Alabama can't say, well, I'm going to pay you a little bit more to entice you to come to me instead of going to Auburn. Um, it, because it's price fixed, because the only thing they can offer is a scholarship, um, some some benefits and cost of living stipends. Um, and that depresses the economic market here, that depresses the, the competitive market here for these athlete services. And the NCAA would very much like an antitrust exemption, both to control that from an amateurism perspective and to control NIL as well, where you can't have kind of these, what they see as under the table, pay for play uh, type of inducements uh, where a collective is being accused of, you know, paying an athlete eleven million dollars uh, to come to a certain school instead of another school, which is essentially the same thing that I just described, just going to a third party instead of the school itself. So Congress seems unlikely to to say yes to this, given like this is already like they're they're already tax exempt because they're they're five hundred one c threes, right? Like. Do we know of any examples of, of, of like major entities that are 501c3s and also have an antitrust exemption? It seems like an odd pairing, right? Uh, not off the top of my head. He kind of put me on the spot there. but Sorry, um, I, I just thought about it like this morning. I was like, I wonder. There, there are a lot of antitrust exemptions out there, um, including most famously probably the the one for, for baseball. But... There's a lot of antitrust exemptions that are kind of given out as, as kind of special interest gifts in, in some cases or in some cases because it's, you know, legitimately we need to control the competitive market here to ensure that prices remain fair for for consumers. And in, in some cases that could be reasonable. In some cases, there's a public policy interest behind it. Um, I'm not as convinced personally that it's, it's there's a public policy interest here that is really important enough to actually give out this kind of thing. But they do. There are. Uh, plenty of antitrust exemptions out there from the most minute, like the Fisherman's Collective Act, which says that, uh, you know, those, you know, fishermen can price fix to a certain extent uh, to the baseball exemption, most famously. All right. With, the, with our final, what do we have, like 10 minutes left here? I I want to get to this, the, the employee status. Where do we think this is going? So currently we, we, we have the Johnston case go, going through, um, do we think that Congress is going to act on employee or definitely not employee status? Do we think it's probably going to come through the courts? What What do we think is the most likely path and, and the most likely outcome here? I feel pretty strongly that the most likely initial path is like, this is happening. And it's if it doesn't happen ultimately with Johnson, it will probably happen with the NLRB. And if it doesn't happen with the NLRB and Johnson, it's either going to de facto happen in the House case, which is next year with those payments, or in, in future litigation. Eventually, it's going to happen. That's not just my personal opinion. Uh, I know that's the opinion of Florida State's athletic administration, senior, senior administration. They talked about that in that public hearing. And uh, if you get a cocktail in an athletic director or a university president that uh, actually reads their email, uh, they might not put this in public, but most of them would agree and that's likely happening in the next three to four years. There's an open question about which athletes will become employees, right? The, the, the plaintiff class in Johnson, as I understand it, and Sam is nodding his head here, we've talked about it, doesn't extend to every single athlete. And there is some real question about, do we think Division II athletes will be classified as employees? Do we think that volleyball players at Weber State or football players at Florida A&M will be classified as employees? That's a, I don't know the answer to that question. And that depends a little bit on the NLRB and the courts. That's going to happen. The big question is, does Congress overrule them? I don't think that is likely now. Is it possible that Republicans take the Senate and the presidency and uh, a desire to move back to what college sports looked like in 1972 um, uh, convinces a few older lawmakers to to sign something that sounds anti-labor in 2025, it's possible. If I knew the answer to that question, extra points would cost a hell of a lot more than eight bucks. Um, <laughs> but the idea that somebody, some athletes are going to be classified as employees is very likely. And that's a conversation that's happening in every P5 athletic department. And that's happening with, I would imagine, with Will and with organizations similar to Will's servicing similar entities. And it's not just 
how do we serve Tennessee athletes? How do we serve athletes now? But then how does our organization evolve and how can we serve athletes and be a part of this ecosystem if things look very different in 2025? So yeah, just jumping off that, and uh, sorry, well, I saw you were about to talk, but just to just to jump off the, you know, talk about the Johnson case for a little bit. Um, after watching the oral arguments um, about a month ago uh, at the Third Circuit, I am about ninety nine percent sure that the Third Circuit's going to rule in favor of the athletes and and find at least allow the case to move forward, and uh, you know, saying it's plausible, it's legally plausible that college athletes are employees as defined under the Fair Labor Standards Act. I am. I have the utmost confidence that that's going to happen. Um, and I think Nicole Auerbeck with The Athletic uh, wrote an article about the hearings that I think hit the nail on the head, which is her framing was the judges are asking the right questions. They're asking, hey, you know, are scholarships actually compensation when we're talking about Supreme Courses like Tony and Sue, Susan Alamo Foundation, which found that, you know, expectation of compensation is, is one of the elements. There's several elements when it comes in down to it. But one of the elements in determining uh an employee from a non-employee, um, but this compensation can take a lot of different forms. It doesn't necessarily have to be cash wages. And if they're getting a scholarship in return for playing sports, where if they decide they don't want to play sports anymore, they lose that scholarship, then that's an expectation of compensation. And the Third Circuit judges on the panel hit on that. I think you know they asked they they asked for for supplemental briefing after that, where the NCAA was kind of forced to say, well, yeah, no, you're you're kind of right. You know, these are contingent off athletic performance um and they're they're going to take that and they're going to they're going to rule in one way or another i'm i'm i have the utmost confidence again that they're going to rule in one way or the other that college athletes are employees now whether they pare it down and say that maybe only scholarship athletes are employees because they have that expectation of compensation or you know as matt said the the plaintiff class in in johnson it's kind of a strange plaintiff class because you have a football player to lead plaintiff but it's a football player at Villanova. Villanova is an FCS school. It's not certainly not a Power Five school or even a G Five school. Um, but in that plaintiff class, you also have uh, a tennis player. You have a baseball player. You have, um, you know, players at private and public universities. Whether they do something to kind of try to change that around a little bit to to you know create kind of boundaries on that is anyone's guess. So we'll just find out in a few months. And at that point, but 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 at that point, they're going to rule that at least some athletes are going to be employees. And at that point, the NCAA is going to argue that there's a circuit split. That the Seventh Circuit and Berger, um, and back in 2016, which was before Alston, uh, key, you know, it's kind of a key point that that creates you know kind of differentiating standards because the Seventh Circuit already ruled that college athletes, uh, you know, in a class that or in a in a case that was led by a University of Pennsylvania um, Ivy League track and field athlete. Um, that that you know that's differing standards, that's differing opinions, and they're going to try to appeal to the Supreme Court. I'm not confident the Supreme Court's going to take the case, and then we're just going to have the Third Circuit ruling. Um, you know, while the Third Circuit, you know, just by jurisdictional standards, only applies to you know those states in the Northeast, you're going to see similar challenges all across the country, and um, it's going to open the floodgates in that regard and really lead to. A lot of college athletes, assuming they can get through the trial, which is going to take a long time, um, a lot of college athletes being deemed employees unless Congress steps in, which I agree with Matt. I don't see that happening anytime soon. So if if the NLRB uh, rules on this or if, if Johnston or, or excuse me, Johnston or, or whatever, however you get to it, if, you know, in five, six years, if if athletes are deemed employees, let's just, you know, for sake of argument, scholarship athletes at the D1 level. Right, because I I think there probably is a fair case to be made that like D two NAI athletes are not employees just because of the expectation of compensation. Well, like, what is a collective's role then? Like lo- long term for for an, you know an outfit like like Spire, what? How do you all operate if players are now employees? Yeah, I mean <clears throat> the first like basic part is that I think there's still a need for entities like us to exist to provide opportunities for athletes to make additional money, whether they're viewed as an employee or not, you know, there's still a desire to, everybody wants to make more money. So there's still an opportunity there for us to provide value to athletes above and beyond what they're compensated through the school as employees. So that's the basics. I mean, where it can get trickier is if, if they're entitled, if they're employees, is title nine applied to everybody? Is there a scenario where schools look to third party entities to outsource the compensation to avoid a title nine situation? 
potentially like a conference. Yes. Like, so potentially is it coming down from the conference so that, you know, they're allocating a certain amount of money to athletes every year to promote the conference. So those people aren't ruled by title nine. Do those payments flow through collectives? So I think there's a lot of opportunities there and like the nuances. And again, my staff will hear me say it all the time. I love a good caveat. So I think there is context with all of these things and, and seeing how it shapes up over the next couple of years. I think collectives are here to stay in one form of the other. Um, college athletics is a big business. And I think what we do is find different ways to make sure athletes are trying to get their piece of that puzzle. Uh, so I, I think we play an integral role in what's going to happen. It's just what that looks like. We are trying to figure out every day to make sure we're moving with the, the next wave. And so we're on top of it. I think it's also inter interesting here. Uh, it, in, in the committee hearing, we had a lot of talk about you know, the, the cut that collectives take or, or, or that some of these, these agents take. And, you know, in, in some cases they, they, they deem it predatory, but like, look, I, my, my buddy's a fairly prominent baseball agent, right? And, you know, guys get a much smaller cut of an employment contract than they, than they do of a marketing deal. It's really not unheard of, you know, to take 20% of a marketing deal, right? Like that may seem kind of predatory and maybe on the higher end potentially, but like 20%, like the guy who negotiated Aaron Judge's contract is not getting 20% of that. If Aaron Judge gets, you know, Long Island Cadillac or something like that, he very well might get 20% of that. And so I think one of the things that we hear these numbers and they seem so big to us right now, it's that all of these deals are quote unquote marketing deals, right? Because none of them are officially pay for play. So right. can I jump sorry, on that real quick? Actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think it's important to note the context of that. And the reason why, um, you know, uh, why the agent for Aaron Judge is only going to get a certain low percentage of that is because that's something that's set by the union. Okay. Um, that is something that's that, you know, the MLBPA sets a limit in their guidelines and says, you know, certified agents can't be um, or can't take a cut of employment contracts that are long, that are bigger, that, that's bigger than 5%. That is their set limit. So, and they have the right to do that because of the, the statutory and non-statutory labor exemptions to antitrust law that allows them to set the market for, uh, you know, to set the competitive market market for agents and, and make determinations there. But there's nothing like that in the NCAA. There's no, really, there's no legal way to, to regulate agents at this point. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So I know Matt has a work call. He has to jump to at 11. We also have probably like an 1102-ish hard out, I assume. Matt, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get extra points. You bet. So, uh, I publish Extra Points four days a week. It is uh, includes original reporting and commentary about all the off-the-field stuff that shapes this industry. That includes NIL, lawmaking, conference realignment, EA Sports, college football, video game development, all kinds of business stuff. You can find that at extrapointsmb.com, or you can find me at Matt Brown EP on Twitter. Awesome, man. All right, so uh, last thing I know, since Matt's got to jump, Will and Sam, you got like one more minute. I kind of wanted to just just kind of talk about the future of collectives, and if if these guys are ruled employees and, and girls, you know, do we see increased motivation for schools to try to bring them more in house or decreased motivation? That's a great question. It uh, <laughs> is a really good question, and I think it's important to note. Um, the the this idea was not of on title, the rundown, so I apologize. What's that? Oh no, this, this was not no on the problem. rundown. So this is a kind of a surprise. No problem. Um, and I think it's important to note that the the status of whether Title IX applies to college athletes when they're deemed employees is very much an open question. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that are willing to say um, one way or the other, usually on on one way, saying yes, it does apply to you know college athletes, and it's going to ruin college sports, and it's going to um, make it so that you know we have to cut all these all these women's and, and, and men's sports in order to comply with Title IX. Um, I'm not convinced because there's another federal statute out there that does a lot of the same things as Title IX, but in the employment contract context, and that's Title VII. So does Title VII apply then? Um, you know what happens if some athletes are employees and some are not? Does Title IX apply to the non-employees and not to the employees? And it's also important to know that Title VII is a lot more permissive to the, well, they do different jobs argument than Title Title IX, as we saw that with uh, a Title VII challenge fairly recently with the uh, the U.S. women's soccer team, um, where they lost a lot of that, that lawsuit based on Title VII, 
uh, because the uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation was able to argue that no, they do a different job than the men's athletes, uh, even if they both play soccer. Um, so Title Seven, Title Seven is a lot. It's a very different standard, uh, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for for women's sports is certainly a, an open question. Um, um, but as far as the, you know, and, and this is all kind of a very roundabout way to getting to your question, you know, does it instead of more in-house? I think it's going to depend a lot on how the Department of Education um, views Title IX in this specific context. It's going to depend a lot on whether some of these loopholes are closed when it comes to Title IX. Um, it's going to depend a lot on how Congress reacts and how they maybe modify Title IX um, to, uh, to, to apply to this kind of thing. But um and it also will absolutely apply on if college athletes are employees, then collective bargaining is probably not far behind it. And unionizing college athletes is going to be a major, major, major challenge, um, if not just completely. It might not even be possible to a certain extent, but even if you can get some class of college athletes that are unionized that create a collective bargaining, it'll very much depend on what that collective bargaining states and what that collective bargaining allows the NCAA conferences and schools to be able to do in order to regulate these uh, this kind of behavior. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride the fence on your question actually. So I think uh, every school wants to control everything, right? I mean, everybody wants to control everything they possibly can in every industry. Like I want to control everything that happens under me. But at the same time, if I'm the schools and I can avoid it altogether, I mean, I, I don't think they want to make college athletes employees because I think that's going to get into a litany of issues from, you know, health insurance and 401ks and all of these things. Like if you could avoid it altogether, I think that's what they would prefer. Uh, but if it's going to happen, I think they're going to want to control it as much as they possibly can. Makes sense. I, I, yeah, I, I think it, best case for these schools collective wise is they want enough control to where they make sure they don't have a some of the very public situations that we've had, you know, so far when, you know, some collectives don't follow through on, on what the promise, uh, but not enough to where like they're potentially liable for those bad deals. Right. Which right. is also you know possible. Uh, although if the school's backing it, they're probably have deeper pockets than, you know, some collectives claim to. So awesome. Man. I, I, uh, I thought we might have a 40 minute show. We had an hour and three minutes show. So that was, uh, that was tremendous. Let's talk about man. Well, we'll tell everybody where, where you can find you. If you're a Tennessee fan, uh, tell, tell them about Spire. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on pretty much all the social channels that will inspire at this point. Um, follow us and then look for the volunteer club. So that is our fan collective model. So if you're a Tennessee fan, join up there for as little as $5 a month. We're providing unique experience for the fans and the athletes. It's a, it's a great partnership between everybody. So look for us at the volunteer club. Awesome, man. Sam, uh, how about you? Where, where everybody find you? What, what are you working on? Yeah, the best non-paywall way to, to find me is uh, on Twitter. Um, my username is Sam C. Ehrlich, S-A-M-C-E-H-R-L-S-E-H. Um, you know, feel free to follow me. I have a, you know, I, I, I try to keep up with all the major sports law issues out there. Um, uh, though right now, a lot of my feed is just ranting about the officiating in yesterday's uh, Iowa LSU game. So uh, maybe not the best example of uh, what I usually do on Twitter, but, um, you know, definitely find me there. Awesome. Guys, really appreciate the time. And uh, Producer Jordan, we finally had a Tennessee ball on. So check those boxes. Producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.